This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Um, like Father Cuddy, I'll break the fourth wall right off, off the bat and tell you that um, I was never a Baptist or a not Catholic. I've, I've been a cradle Catholic, but I was a materialist. And as um, Father Jonah mentioned, I did uh, study biology in my undergraduate uh, studies. And um, before that, my education was very science-focused. So I was a materialist. I had a very difficult time believing in anything immaterial. And what that meant was that for me, I had, some people asked, the reason I mentioned this is because some people asked yesterday uh, to Father Cuddy, who doubts this? And the answer is that 10 years ago, I would have. Um, I would have doubted not the whole God stuff, that made perfect sense, but actually the idea that we could really know things and the idea that we had free will. It all seemed deterministic to me. So the talk that I've prepared is called Man as Knowing Animal because the theme of the conference is faith and reason, and you have to begin with what is most known to you before you move on to what is uh, harder to understand. You start with those things that are natural to us. So I start with reason, and then I talk about faith in the next talk. And what I want to do in particular is really give you some of the theory that is behind a lot of what Father Cuddy was talking about. Because maybe some of you did have doubts about it, maybe you didn't, um, or, but I'm, I guarantee you that if you go around talking about this, you will encounter people who do. But even if that's not the case, it's still important to come to a correct understanding of what we're talking about. So I want to explain the theory behind that, and then uh, that'll also help us see what kind of mistakes people make that cause them to doubt the things that Father Cuddy was talking about. So, um, as I was preparing this for you, I was thinking to myself that these, you were all in college, and I thought to myself, okay, well, when, how, how long ago was I in college? And I realized that the answer to that question was 12 years, and that kind of shocked me. I didn't think it had been quite so long. And I was thinking about, you know, what were the faith and reason controversies of the day at that time? And this is back when Facebook was new, so it's a little bit different now, but my expectation is that things probably haven't changed too much because faith and reason, the relationship between faith and reason is something that has been controversial for several centuries. People have been debating it a lot. People still have the same questions. Nevertheless, it is still generally presupposed that there is a conflict between faith and reason. And I myself, when I was studying biology and I decided to study theology in graduate school, I went to one biology professor and asked her for a letter of recommendation and she said, would my recommendation be valid? Would they care what I have to say about you? And then I asked somebody else, another biology professor, for a letter of recommendation and he goes like, wait, what do you want to do in grad school? And I said theology and he goes, cool, 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 cool. So, so are you going to say that like physics is God or something? And I said, no, no, professor, that's, that's not at all the case. What's funny, though, is that these were both scientists, and they seemed to presume, for example, that you know, the Big Bang Theory or the theory of evolution had simply disproven this silly account of creation that's in Genesis. What they didn't realize was that the person who first thought of the Big Bang Theory was a Catholic priest, George Lemaitre, um, who apparently didn't see a problem with this. And also, I don't know about you, but on my reading of Augustine, I think that he proposes something that's very similar to the theory of evolution. 
although we could quibble about that. Nevertheless, I don't think he would have been scandalized by the idea. So anyway, the point is that I don't know what controversies you're facing today, but I don't think that they've changed too much. So I'm just going to dive right in. One of the things I like to say in class is that philosophy is to theology as math is to physics. And what I mean by that is that as math is the language of physics, or physics is the investigation of nature through the use of mathematics, so theology is the investigation of the Christian religious tradition with the use of philosophy. We take various philosophical concepts, terms, logical structures, and so on, and we apply them to Revelation in order to understand what is in Revelation. You can't approach Revelation without any theory. Even if you, even if you want to read the Bible by itself, you still have to have some concept of what words mean. There has to be some theory that you have. So what we have to do before talking about matters of faith is talk about our philosophy and make sure that we have a sound philosophy before proceeding. So the first question I have is this, what does it mean to say that man is rational? Let's get our philosophical anthropology straight. And to say that man is rational really means two things. The first thing is that it means that man is a weird kind of being who is situated in creation halfway between angels and animals. We are not angels, we are not animals, but we are kind of something like what you would get if you took an angel and an animal and smashed them together. The second thing it means is that as being this kind of weird creature, we have a particular way of knowing things that is unique to us. We don't experience the world the way animals do, we don't experience reality the way uh, angels do. But rather, again, in a way that's kind of what you would get if you smash those two modes of knowing together. So first, what I want to do is talk about where man fits in the hierarchy of creation to situate him between angels and animals, and then talk about the implications that this has for us to be considered rational. What does it mean for us to be rational creatures? Now. If you want to categorize all of the beings that you find in visible creation, Father Cuddy was talking a lot about rocks, we can start there. One of the ways you could do so, one of the ways the ancients did so, was by focusing on the way things change. What they called motion, but they used motion in a very broad sense, just focusing on the way things change. The thing about rocks is that they don't change themselves. If you pick one up and drop it, it will fall. But the thing about a rock is that it is only acted upon by things outside of itself. It itself does not act. Plants are a bit different. They do move themselves. Uh, they grow toward the sunlight. Their roots find water and things like that. But they move only according to a plan. And more importantly, they don't know that they do this. They just do it. But they do do it. Animals like plants, move themselves, but unlike plants, they have some perception of doing this. They have sense powers, and they're able to act in accord with this sensory information. So an animal eats things, but it doesn't just eat, it eats this rather than that. It seeks out this kind of food rather than that kind of food, or it mates in this season rather than at that season. But the animal's motion is governed by instinct, 
it is also a kind of program. For example, I've tried explaining to my cat that although I normally fed her at 6 p.m. standard time, when the clocks changed, it was not her dinner time at 6 p.m. Seve's time, right? I, you, could ex you could try all you want, you'll never convince her. All you have to do is rehabituate her to the new time. You're never, you're never going to convince a bird not to build a nest. Uh, and one of my favorite thinkers, no surprise, Thomas Aquinas, says that, this is, this is a, I love the, it's, it's, he says this in one of his early works, he says, the industriousness of honeybees is applied to no other activity than building honeycombs. In other words, they're very hard workers, sure, but you're never going to convince them to do anything else with their ambition. Now, say we're moving up the scale, and after covering rocks and plants and animals, now we get to humans. Humans are able to apprehend sensory things like animals, but they are able to apprehend, more importantly, what they are and what we are. And we are also, therefore, able to apprehend whether or not things are good for us. So a dog, for example, doesn't think about nourishment. A dog simply eats when it is hungry. But human beings are burdened with the unfortunate knowledge that some foods are unhealthy. And so we actually have to, but also get to, think about what we eat. The dog apprehends the food not as something nourishing, but just as something tasty. We apprehend it in both ways. It's tasty, sure, but is it good for you? And it's easy to overlook how significant this really is. This is really, this is one of the cruxes. This, well, somebody was asking yesterday, where is the, why do people not buy this? And this is the reason why, because people conflate animal knowing with human knowing. It's easy, so I'll, I'll put it like this. A dog might be like, a, a dog might like being told that he's a good dog, but he doesn't understand what that means. He has no conception of a good dog. But a human person is quite different. I don't know about you, for example, but I am constantly oppressed by my, a sense of my own inadequacy as a human being. I really, I really suck. I'm just terrible. But a dog doesn't suffer from that kind of apprehension. In other words, a dog apprehends ends, objects of choice, things that it can choose. But a human being apprehends ends as ends. Another way of putting this is that a dog makes choices. It eats this rather than that. But a human being is aware that he's making choices. A dog just chooses. A human being is aware of the act of making a choice. So we have a sort of metacognition. We're not just aware of things. We are aware that we are aware of things. I perceive that I perceive. Another way of putting all of this, rather than in terms of change, is in terms of interiority, things that are interior to you. So inanimate things have no interiority whatsoever. Think of a saw. It doesn't cut itself. It cuts something else. It cuts a piece of wood. A plant, however, is quite different, because a plant assimilates nutrients into itself. Other things become part of it. It is able to absorb things that make it part of itself. An animal is able to do this to an even greater degree because an animal is able to perceive something out in the world and then come up with a sensory impression of it. And that sensory impression is internal to the animal. 
it's not something that exists outside of the animal. It's something that is internal to the animal. I mean, the color blue has existence as such phenomenologically in your mind. But outside of your mind, it's a wavelength on the electromagnetic spectrum. But your intellect, the human mind, apprehends essences. In other words, whatnesses. When we say essence, it's just a fancy way of saying what something is. So you apprehend the essences of the things around you, and you end up with a concept in your mind that is something permanent to you, something that is a perpetual part of your interior life. So to summarize it, rocks don't seek anything outside themselves. They're acted upon by outside agents. They have no interiority whatsoever. Plants seek things without knowing it. Animals seek things through sense. And human beings seek things on the basis of knowledge. And what this means for us is that we can choose whether to seek things or not on the basis of whether we think that they're good for us. And that's why, for example, you never see a dog growing up to be a lawyer or a cat choosing to be celibate. A human being can be married or celibate. A human being can eat or fast. A dog doesn't do these things. You never see, you never see um, a dog deciding to fast for religious reasons. What this shows is that this is another really important point. Unlike those other things in visible creation, there is something immaterial about us. There is something more to us than our bodies. And the fact that we're able to apprehend essences is proof of this, and I'll explain that. Before I get into the deep philosophy, I want to point out that I think that I like what Father Cuddy kept emphasizing yesterday, the experience of children. And that's what, because ch children, children are not corrupted by bad philosophy. <laughs> they still just have their sense experience, right? And I mean, he's absolutely right. All children are realists. It's only when you grow up that you become a skeptic. And so children are realists. And one of the things that really shocked me when I first read Aristotle, for example, was that he's just so confident in our ability to know things. Whereas my entire life, I have been plagued with doubt about our ability to really know essences and things like that. And he's just like, yeah, sure, you look at it, you know what it is. What's the big deal? And you're like, yeah, you can actually do that. That's pretty amazing. But I think that everyone actually has an intuitive sense of this. So let me give you a very simple demonstration. One of my friends told me that he was having trouble potty training his son because whenever he put his son on the toilet, the kid would freak out because he was afraid that he was going to lose his me. You hear it? You see that? He thought that his self was going to fall out of his body into the toilet. <laughs> he had an intuitive grasp that there was something more to him than his body. And he recognized that that thing, whatever it was, was able to be separated from his body. And he's right about that. He's thinking about the soul. Now, he's wrong to think that the soul can fall into the toilet. <laughs> but he's right that it can be separated. So there's, there's a basic intuition. There's something more to us than the mere physical appearances of our bodies. But let's argue about this, for example, so we can see why the intellect has to be immaterial. The basic idea that we get from Aristotle is that the intellect must be immaterial because it is able to understand these universal ideas. 
essences, what something is. When Father Cuddy was talking about rocks, he said, once you understand what a rock is, then you can recognize any rock that you come across in the future, even if you've never seen it before. What that means is that you have the idea of rock in your mind, and that is an accurate, if, it, if, you're, if you have properly understood a rock, then you have an accurate understanding of what a rock is, and you will be able to recognize any rock. The problem, though, is that if our minds were made of matter, or if our intellect was reducible to our brain, this would be impossible. The medieval philosophers like to say, nihil dat quod non habit, which means nothing gives what it doesn't have. An organ is limited by space and time. So if our intellect were an organ, it would also be limited by space and time. And we would not under, be able to understand universal things, because universal things are not limited by space and time. Two plus two equals four always and everywhere. It doesn't matter whether you're in ancient Greece or here today, it's always the same. So it's not something limited by space and time. A lump of clay, for example, that you make an impression on with a stamp can only be impressed in one place at one time. It only has that one impression. It can't, you can't impress an infinite number of images on it. You can only impress one at a time. But your mind is quite different if you consider the limitations of materiality. That lump of clay has some flexibility about it. You can mold it into a cup or into a bowl, but you cannot mold it into both simultaneously. A cup can be large or small, but it cannot be both. When a cup becomes a bowl, it loses its cupness. When a kitten becomes a cat, it is no longer small. It loses its smallness. Your mind is not like this. Your mind is open to all physical forms. When you gain something new in your mind, when you form a new concept, you don't lose an old one. A material thing can be either hot or cold, but your mind can consider both heat and coldness at the same time. Analogously, you'll notice that my glasses are clear. That might seem odd to you, but it's actually for a very important reason. The reason my glasses are clear is so that they can be open to any color that I look at. If my glasses were tinted red, I would only see red. Likewise, if your minds were made of matter, it would be limited by the limitations of matter. Here's a very simple, but I think very powerful example. Do me a favor. Think of a color that you have not seen before. OK, raise your hand when you've done it. OK, thank god. <laughs> it's, it's, this has always worked. I'm terrified of the day when someone goes, I did it. But it's interesting to note that you couldn't do it. But what's even more interesting to note is that you understood what I asked you to do. So what that shows you is that you have two modes of apprehension. You're able to understand things in two different ways. One is sensory, like the animals. When you imagine a color, you use a sense power. That's called your imagination. But all your imagination does is call up things that you've sensed before. And if there's a color that you've never seen, you can't fabricate it with your imagination because your sense, your imagination is limited by space and time, by particularity. But your intellect is not, so that's why you're able to understand the question. You can understand the concept of a color that you haven't seen before, but you can't imagine it. So that's, that's what it means to say that man is a knowing animal. We know things. 
Like you know the idea of a color that you haven't seen before, but we're also animals because we have sense powers like the animals do. So the human mode of cognition is an amalgam of both. It has those sensory characteristics. We are limited by it, but it also has those universal characteristics that, as I'll talk about in a second, is how the angels know things. Okay. I'll point out briefly that what this means is that this, this is also, I didn't talk about the will very much, but this also explains why it is that we can say things that we love God or that we seek virtue, immaterial things. If we were, did not have immaterial intellects, we would not be able to seek immaterial objects with our wills. Because we do, we're able to do that. Animals only seek sensible goods, more food, or an opportunity to mate or something like that. But we can seek things above and beyond the material world. Okay. So that's given us a sense of what man is. I want to foc- I've mostly focused on how we're different from animals. I will talk about angels a bit because that's fun. Um, we don't talk about angels enough in theology. Angels are really cool, so we have to do more of that. Um, I want to focus now on this actual um, uh, on the coming to know things. It's important though to, to recognize that this knowledge that I'm claiming we have, I'm going to argue that we have, is really what separates us qualitatively from the other animals. I had a biology professor in college who used to insist over and over again that humans differ in degree from other animals, but not in kind. We're not really different from them. We're just smarter apes. It's not true. We're quite different. I don't know. I mean, I have a baby and a cat at home. It's very obvious when you have both of those things looking at you. But in any event, I don't know, maybe this guy needs to get a cat and a baby. But anyway. (laughs) So the first question when we're talking about knowledge is what it is. What is knowledge? And it seems quite silly at first. It's the kind of thing that when a professor asks, he usually groan in the classroom. Oh, my goodness, we all know what knowledge is. But it's actually quite tricky to define. The first thing you can point out about it it is is that there is no knowledge if there's not anything that knows. So there has to be a knower. And there also isn't any knowledge if there isn't anything known. So there has to be an object, something that the knower knows. And finally, there has to be some kind of relationship between the two. If I, if I, the knower, exist, and something that I could know also exists, that doesn't mean that I know it. I have to have some, there has to be some relationship to it. So the main question when we're trying to understand what knowledge is, is what kind of relationship does the knower have to the known? And Western philosophy has traditionally called this possession. Knowledge is the possession of the known in the knower, or the knower possesses what is known. That still doesn't clarify how it works. Empedocles, who was a pre-Socratic philosopher, thought... That Well, he was, a, he was a materialist, Empedocles. He was an atomist. And he was the one who came up with the, four, uh, the idea of the four elements, earth, air, fire, water. Everything is a composition of these elements, right? So because he was a materialist, his account of knowledge was a materialist one, and he thought that knowledge was acquired with the Goliath problem, basically, uh, by taking atoms out of something and incorporating them into your soul. And his idea of the soul was kind of like a a web of elements that would, and your, me- and your memory simply was contained like little samples of all the things that you had sensed before. So when you sense the apple, you get a little bit of the apple. 
becomes a little bit of part of you. Okay, so this seems kind of absurd, right? But why does it seem absurd? Well, for one thing, if Empedocles was right, then how would there be any difference between knowing something and ingesting something? But more to the point, how could knowledge be reflexive? How would we know that we know things? Does the soul become more of a part of itself? It doesn't really make sense. So Aristotle refines the theory of Empedocles, and he argues that when we come to know something, we take its form but not its matter. We come to know an apple. A representation of the apple's form exists in your mind, not the apple itself. It's not quite the Goliath problem because I'm not talking about rocks anymore, but the same principle applies. You don't actually get an apple in your head when you come to know it. So we can refine the definition of knowledge that we've come to. To know something is to possess its form. To know something is to possess its form. And knowing is an imminent action. In other words, it is an action that we produce in ourselves. It doesn't change the thing that we know. For Empedocles, the apple is different after you look at it. You've absorbed some of the apple. But for Aristotle, the apple is exactly the same after you know it as before you know it. And this highlights something that's very important about human knowledge. It does originate in the senses. We are, in fact, knowing animals. So there is a medieval Arabic philosopher by the name of Avicenna. Well, that wasn't his name, but that's what the Latin people called him, and I don't know Arabic, so Avicenna. And uh, he, he came up with something that's called the flying man experiment. So consider this. Let's just say that above you all right now, a man came into existence, and he's just floating there, and he has no functioning sense powers. He can't feel anything, he can't see anything, he can't smell anything, whatever. He's just there. God created him like that. Does he know anything? The answer you give to that question reveals the kind of epistemological theory that you have. Now, a realist would say no. He doesn't know anything. And the reason is because there is nothing in the intellect that did not first originate in the senses. To say that the person knows something, that the flying man knows something, would be to say that people are born with knowledge and that they project it onto the world around them. Real knowledge is in the mind, not in things. But to say that a man would know nothing is to say that all knowledge comes through the senses and is measured by the real world around us. Both views, believe it or not, have had supporters in the Christian tradition. But the view that all knowledge begins in the senses has overall won out. Nevertheless, this knowledge faces some difficulties that we, this, this uh, theory faces some difficulties that we have to deal with. Here's the main question. If sense knowledge produces a mental representation of a sense object, what is the difference between sense knowledge and intellectual knowledge? In other words, what is the difference between animal knowing and human knowing? And this is, this is why a lot of people deny the uniqueness of human beings. Why is it that our knowledge is different than animal knowledge? And the difference lies in particularity versus universality. Sense knowledge of an object uh, is of that object alone. Do me another favor. Imagine a dog. You're thinking of a Rottweiler, you're thinking of a Doberman, you're thinking of a Chihuahua, right? But when you would imagine a dog, you only think of one. 
Nevertheless, your mind is holding the concept of all dogs, a concept that pertains to all dogs. So the knowledge of the form of dog is what represents all of them. And the knowledge that is proper to man has to be distinguished from this sense knowledge in order to uh, distinguish us from animals. That's the unique, that's the thing that we have. The, um, uh, the universality. There's a really interesting story um, by a woman named Temple Grandin who was uh, uh, born with autism and had to try to understand these things actively. Whereas you just do, you, you, you know the difference between a dog and a cat. You've never had to think about it. She did. Uh, her family had a dog and a cat, and the cat was smaller. So she said, okay, cats are small, dogs are big. And then she met a chihuahua, and she said, kitty. And her mom said, no, that's not a kitty, that's a dog. So she said, okay, cats have pointy ears, dogs have floppy ones. And that didn't work because she met a pointy ear, you know, so on and so forth. But you can actually do this. It's pretty amazing. Here's where we get into the philosophical differences. If you confuse human knowledge with animal knowledge... That's what gets you British empiricism. That's what gets you the skepticism of, of the British analytic philosophers. If you confuse human knowledge with angelic knowledge, that's what gets you Descartes, where you have these innate ideas that you project onto the world in order to try and apprehend it. And um, ironically, you end up in the same place as the empiricists, denying that you can know anything. So it actually does matter that you can get this, get this right. And if you confuse human knowledge with divine knowledge, well, that gets you to German idealism, the ideas of Immanuel Kant and things like that. Because God's knowledge is quite different from anybody else's knowledge, because as Father Cuddy explained, God's knowledge creates. Our knowledge doesn't create, it receives. For the idealist, for example, the mind is an active power. It creates the truth. But for a realist, the mind is fundamentally passive. It receives the truth. And although our mind does have active qualities, we do have practical knowledge and are able to make things. Fundamentally, the disposition of our mind is passive. But it is that passivity, the receptivity of our minds, that guarantees the realism of our knowledge. We're able to know, that, to, to know things and know that we know them because our minds are passive. Extra mental reality is something that we're able to know because we receive the forms of the things around us. Okay. I want to emphasize in closing just how amazing this is. And I'll, th again, think of something very simple. Consider a circle. You've never seen one before. Every circle that you've seen does not fit the definition of circle. A circle is supposed to be a line that is curved, wherein every point on the line is equidistant from a center point. But you've never actually seen that. Nevertheless, you know what it is, and your knowledge isn't fake but you are able to transcend the limits of matter and apprehend the definition of a circle such that it applies to all circles. And you can actually predict geometrically what future outcomes would be based on your understanding of what circles are. Aquinas' account of this is called abstraction. You're able to see a thing, and abstract means to pull away from in Latin, so you're able to pull the universal characteristic of something out of its material limitations and apprehend that. 
And this is really astounding, and it's not, honestly to me, maybe, maybe to you, but to me it's not surprising that people doubt this, because it truly is extraordinary. Plato, for example, did think it impossible. He did not think that you could apprehend forms based on the material things. He thought that you already knew them. His theory of knowledge is called reminiscence because he thought that you came from this world of universal ideas and you were trapped in a body and then you would, when you saw something, you wouldn't really apprehend it so much as you would remember having seen it before. You already have the knowledge in your mind of what things are. Aristotle has a brilliant critique of this. He says that if that were true, if Plato was right, that coming to know things was not a matter of abstraction but really a matter of remembering then our knowledge of theory should be clearer than our knowledge of particular things. But in, 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 in actual practice, the opposite is the case. We know most clearly those things that we sense, and then from what we sense, we can gradually understand theoretical things. So what that shows you is that, in fact, the theory of abstraction is true. We know singular things. We can come to know theoretical things over time. So in sum, we are in between animals and angels, Animals have senses, and so do we. But unlike them, in addition, we're able to grasp universal truths. Unlike angels, we come to this knowledge through the mediation of sense. They don't have sense powers. We do. So our coming to know things is a gradual process that takes time and effort. Angels simply know things immediately and intuitively. And then finally, unlike God, we don't create the truth. We receive it. So to be a rational being, to be a knowing animal, is to be endowed with reason in a certain way by which we understand true universal things, but only through the mediation of sense powers. Okay, that's it. Thank you.